Palmyra, a 2,000-year-old city remarkably preserved in the middle of the desert, and now in the hands of ISIS. A satellite image has confirmed that the main temple in the ancient Syrian city of Palmyra has been destroyed by Islamic State. A prominent Syrian antiquities scholar has been murdered by ISIL fighters, according to his relatives. His body was reportedly hung from a lamppost in the historic town of Palmyra. These reports are from the front lines of a war against ancient culture. The terror group ISIS, also known as the Islamic State, ISIL and Daesh, closing in on Palmyra in central Syria, then looting and destroying its Greco-Roman ruins that date back several millennia. These attacks have claimed human victims as well. 83-year-old Syrian archaeologist Khalid al-Assad was tortured and beheaded for refusing to help militants find hidden artifacts. Amidst the sea of human misery that we have seen unfold in the Middle East, the brutal murder of Khalid al-Assad left me and I think the international community and the peoples of the world absolutely speechless. That's Kevin Rudd, president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and former prime minister of Australia. Here we had a scholar. Here we had a humanitarian. He had a person who dedicated his life to the preservation of our common heritage. And then in this moment where he became vulnerable in the hands of those who are definitionally evil, he was slaughtered. Uh, he has truly become a martyr for our common cultural heritage. And he lives as an inspiration to us all. Not knowing him, but I think that if he were with us now, would call us to arms about what we do next. Culture has always been the victim of war, but what we see today is new. These terrorists are just intimidated by history because history delegitimizes them. The terrorists are uh, intimidated by history, but they are also very interested in money. The theft and sale of ancient artifacts imperils our shared heritage and funds terrorists seeking to destroy modern society. It is an attack on the very essence of humankind. It is our shared duty to stop these attacks and protect our common heritage. Today we'll explore the destruction and trafficking of antiquities in the Middle East. What are the implications and what can be done about it? I'm Eric Fish, and this is the Asia Society Podcast. Culture indeed is under attack today, like never before. That's Irina Bokova, Director General of UNESCO and increasingly the global point person on the worsening crisis of antiquities trafficking and destruction. She was speaking at the Asia Society in New York at a special forum called Culture Under Threat, co-hosted by the Antiquities Coalition. The forum featured foreign ministers, leaders of museums, cultural foundations, law enforcement, and military experts. Bokova spoke about the destruction of the 2,000-year-old Temple of Bell, a UNESCO World Heritage Site that was recently blown up by ISIS in Palmyra. The temple was a symbol of millennial dialogue between cultures, and this is why I believe it was destroyed. The challenge we face today is sustained, barbaric, systematic destruction and looting of antiquities. This is what I called a couple of months ago cultural cleansing. A war crime? Cultural cleansing is a strategy to spread hatred, to eradicate cultural identities and makers, to deepen sectarian violence. All six of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Syria have now been damaged or destroyed, along with two of the four sites in Iraq. That's in addition to dozens of museums and other archaeological sites throughout the Middle East that have been ransacked since the Arab Spring began in 2011. Culture has always been the victim of war, but what we see today is new. New in scale, 
and in nature. Because we do believe that attacks against heritage and culture are, in fact, attacks against people, against their identities, against their human rights. They are attacks against the humanity we all share. A number of reasons have been suggested as to why ISIS wantonly destroys precious antiquities, from boosting recruitment, to garnering international attention, to erasing pre-Islamic history that might delegitimize its ideology. But in fact, most of the movable artifacts that end up in terrorists' hands aren't destroyed, they're trafficked and sold. Since 2011, an estimated $3 billion worth of artifacts have been lost just in Egypt to what's referred to as cultural racketeering. The estimate in Syria is $2 billion, according to the Antiquities Coalition. These numbers are very rough estimates, but when you consider that just $1 million can buy ISIS more than 11,000 AK-47 machine guns or 1,200 rocket launchers, even a huge margin of error on these figures presents a sobering situation. And this is why I do believe that cultural cleansing is no longer only a cultural emergency. It is a security issue and a peace-building imperative. But if it's a cultural emergency or a war crime... What can be done to stop it? Here's what I will identify today as the number one problem facing the prosecutor, the investigator, the military, the person trying to stop this, the borders. That's Matthew Bogdanos, a colonel in the United States Marine Corps who's been investigating cultural looting in the Middle East for more than a decade. We all represent nations of laws. We respect those laws and we respect the borders. The bad guys do not. Bogdanos explained that there's a global black market and a complex international network for antiquities trafficking. Any given case of stolen and trafficked artifacts could involve half a dozen or more countries, with evidence, witnesses, warehouses, and the items themselves spread across them. So if he gets a tip-off from an informant about missing items or evidence, he may have to wait six to nine months to get an answer and a search warrant from the government in question. By this time, the intelligence has become stale. And so... Every time someone says practical measures, my response is scrap this archaic system where we have to communicate through letters rogatory. Scrap that we have to go through uh, the Department of State and the Department of Justice and in individual countries. Give us the ability to do what we do in real life. I just need the ability to pick up the phone and talk to someone in Tamil Nadu or in Geneva or in Beirut or in Rome and get the information in a timely fashion so that we can act on it. Catch the bad guys and put them in jail where they belong and return the, the stolen priceless heritage to the country where it belongs. With the obvious political difficulty of enacting these changes anytime soon, much attention has shifted away from the supply side of the antiquities black market to the demand side. After these items are plundered from the Middle East, they often end up in the hands of buyers in the United States and Europe. So one of the issues around uh, import restrictions that has been somewhat effective and sometimes controversial has been the cultural memorandums understandings led by the State Department. That's Deborah Lair, chairman of the Antiquities Coalition. One of the agreements she spoke of was signed with Iraq in 2008, when the United States started prohibiting the import of Iraqi artifacts. However, there's currently no such agreement for Syria or Egypt, though legislation for Syria is pending in Congress. But it currently remains legal to take Syrian artifacts through U.S. Customs, even if the items were stolen. And this appears to be happening in large volume. Between 2011 and 2013, the value of imported Syrian antiquities declared to U.S. Customs grew by 166%. 
This also affects Iraqi items, since many of the artifacts from there can easily be mistaken for and declared as Syrian. That's why bringing the maximum number of countries in on these agreements is critical. These tend to take a long time. For Egypt, who had applied for emergency measures in the midst of their crisis, it's been a negotiation that's been going on for almost two years. But if they can actually be implemented on a more expedited basis, it's something that can be very effective in stopping the borders. Iraq has one, uh, and hopefully with legislation, we'd be able to do the same thing with Syria. A number of suggestions were made for protecting endangered items beyond strengthening laws that criminalize and help intercept their trafficking and purchase. Another idea was better communication between countries and the establishment of digital registries of artifacts so they can be monitored and sent to safe havens if need be. A registry of this sort could also let buyers see which items are so-called blood antiquities that they should avoid purchasing. A few panelists also compared the situation to the trafficking of ivory elephant tusks from Africa, and how a global media campaign featuring figures like Yao Ming and Hillary Clinton has made real inroads in convincing buyers to think twice about where the items they're buying come from. But James Cuno, president and CEO of the J. Paul Getty Trust, says ultimately we do have to focus on the region where this cultural looting is originating. I do feel like we are um, missing the big issue uh, and and that we're looking at something that could be described as relatively low-hanging fruit. And those are the uh, portable objects that move across borders because we have a regime in place, however successful or not successful it is, there is one in place to prevent that movement of illegally uh, excavated <coughs> objects acro- across borders, uh, first at the border itself, the border then of Iraq and Syria, um, and neighboring borders. But the Temple of Bell wouldn't have been stopped by policing the borders to protect, uh, to, to inhibit or to restrict the movement of uh, portable objects. It would only be stopped by people protecting the site. And it's going to take boots on the ground to do so. Boots on the ground refers to sending in ground military, which in this case could be troops from the United States or UN Blue Helmet peacekeepers. I support boots on the ground, knowing full well that it's probably going to be my boots. But it has to be part of an overall strategy. That's Colonel Matthew Bogdanos again. He says that troops on the ground to protect these ancient sites entails tough questions. Questions like, what are the rules of engagement? Under what circumstances can you shoot and kill in order to, as Colonel Bogdanos put it, defend alabaster and limestone? How do you garner political will to send troops to faraway countries to defend these inanimate structures? He says that one approach is to train troops from the host nation to guard these cultural sites, which can be done within about six months. But this also entails problems. He recalled a situation in Iraq where he had spent months training local recruits to defend an ancient site. It was a wonderful moment for me when I turned over a series of a group of trained um, Iraqi recruits to start protecting some of the sites outside a particular village. I returned to the site, to the area 30 days later. Not a single guard was on the site. They were all in the village. They were they were still there. They hadn't deserted. They hadn't left. They were still there. But they were protecting the the village, the city center itself. I went to one of the individuals in a position of authority to whom I had ceremonially turned over these guards uh, a month earlier. And I said, what are you, what are you doing? I gave you trained security guards uh, to protect the sites outside the village, and they're in the village. And he replied to me, yes, thank you very much. Um, as soon as I can stop them from killing my people, I will put them on the, the sites outside 
my village. We can ignore that. We can close our eyes and say, okay, we've given you trained security guards for sites. Well, they're the host nation. They're the sovereign nation. They get to choose where to put their resources. And if given a choice between people and rocks, um, they're going to choose people. Several speakers at the Asia Society Forum agreed that it comes back to education and communicating better with the governments and the people in these affected countries about both the symbolic and the practical importance of guarding these treasures. This is an enormous uh, tragedy, but of course, in all tragedies, uh, there is an opportunity. That's Kate Seeley, vice president of the Middle East Institute. And I think this issue allows East and West to, to come together, to work together, to fight the destruction of our shared uh, humanity. People's lives are at stake here. That is the priority, and we need to do a better job of explaining to the people in the region uh, how it is that protecting and preserving monuments and shrines and stones is about actually working toward their well-being and, and, and the sustainability of their communities. That, that, that is needed to be repeated over and over to continue to build trust. UNESCO Director Irina Bokova recalled a recent trip to Tunisia's Bardot Museum which houses a large collection of ancient Roman mosaics unearthed in the region. Earlier this year, the site was attacked by a local terrorist cell, which killed 21 people in its assault. After visiting the museum, Bokova spoke at a nearby high school. I told the, the, the children, the students, I said, you know, you have an incredible heritage here. I just visited the Roman mosaics, which are maybe more beautiful than uh, the Italians have in Rome in, in some places. And I said, you should be proud of it. And the girl took uh, the floor and said, uh, I'm sorry, I don't agree with you. You told me that I have to be proud of a culture that does not belong to me. This is not a culture that belongs to us, to the Tunisians. And I said, how much work we have to do if we want really to educate young people in diversity, in respect for different cultures, in having the ownership, because I told her this is part of your history, of the history of your people. This diversity, you should be proud of this diversity. It is the richness of Tunisia. Most at the forum were in agreement that addressing the problem will take a multi-pronged approach involving a broad coalition of private and government actors engaging in long-term education and legal initiatives, as well as shorter-term measures to frustrate those trying to illicitly seize, sell, or destroy antiquities. In closing, Egyptian Foreign Minister Sama Shukri had this to say. The responsibility to confront these terrorist criminal acts lies with the international community, including governments, international and regional organizations, museums, the art market, archaeologists, media, and all others who are interested in preserving this heritage for humanity. And only a united global effort can stop the illegal trade of stolen artifacts and defeat terrorists who profit from erasing our history. That's it for today. If you want to hear more episodes, you can go to asiasociety.org podcast or subscribe on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Our music is by Tiri Mangmang and his ensemble, Shweman Tepinzapwe. They were performing live at Asia Society in New York as part of a season of Myanmar. The music at the opening is by Gary Lucas, and the news footage in order of appearance was from CNN, ODN, and Euronews. I'm Eric Fish, and we'll see you next time on the Asia Society podcast.